This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. When Indian journalist Taran Khan arrived in Kabul in 2006, she imagined it as a homecoming, a return to the land from where her Pashtun ancestors came. Falling in with poets, doctors, and other journalists, she began exploring the city on foot and discovered a Kabul quite different from the one she had encountered in the world's media. Taran Khan joins me today to talk about her new book, Shadow City, which just won the Stanford Dolman Travel Book of the Year Award. This interview was recorded several weeks before the announcement. Taran, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. And congratulations on your Stanford Dolman Travel Writing Award nomination. That's a great nod there. Yes, I'm really happy to be in this really incredible shortlist. I think the, the books on it look so really, really interesting. And they're so diverse. I love the fact that there's women writers, there's writers from diverse backgrounds. So I feel like it's a great honor to be on this list. Mm -hmm. And your book is one of the uh, interesting ones on the list as well. You've written a, a lovely book called Shadow City, A Woman Walks Kabul. And it's a deep and, and rich book. First, why don't you just tell us a little bit about this new book of yours? Sure. Um, it's my first book. Um, and it's about, uh, as you said, it's called Shadow City, A Woman Walks Kabul. And it's essentially a story about the city of Kabul. Um, I started going uh, to Afghanistan for the first time in 2006. And I'm a journalist. And I've, um, you know, at that time, Afghanistan was very much in the news. Um, because in 2001, the Taliban had been overthrown. And, uh, you know, the NATO forces led by the United States were there, and it seemed to be a time of really incredible change going on. I got the opportunity to go there with my husband and another friend. We were uh, teaching video production at a small um, channel run by the Afghan government. And we spent a really, really incredible time there, met so many interesting people, and the energy of the city at that time was quite electric, I think. There were people doing a lot of interesting work despite having a lot of obstacles. And um, I and my husband both just really fell in love with the city. We made really good friends and we tried to go back as often as we could. So um, we made different journeys to Kabul from 2006 to 2013 was the last time I was there. And the book essentially covers this period mm. um, in my life and in the life of the city. So the arc of the book overall, if you see, is about five years after the Taliban had been removed from power. And 2013 was a year before the NATO forces were to formally end their combat operations in the country. Of course, it played out very differently. But at that time, 2014 was supposed to be the end of this narrative arc. And so that's essentially the time I saw the city. And I feel like I had a window into this time of great flux, a time of great change. And um, so that's what the, that is the period the book covers. Mm -hmm. So from this period, from 2006 to 2013, uh, when you returned to Kabul, was this in the capacity of doing video production work or um, did you return under different circumstances? 
It was always to do some kind of uh, a similar project. It would always be for media training broadly. Mm. Um, but I'm also a journalist and I was writing the whole time I was there. I would write for different publications, mostly in India. And um, so, you know, essentially when I began writing the book, um, I was actually becoming slightly frustrated with how I would see the city and how I would write the city. I felt there was a, a lag in between these two cities that I was, you know, essentially inhabiting. And even within the format of feature writing, even if it was a sort of a slightly longer canvas to work with, I felt the most interesting things that I would see in, in Kabul were the things that I wouldn't write about. And so I started writing slightly more, I wouldn't say experimental, but just, you know, pieces that looked at the stuff that I thought was, you know, really, which moved me or which I felt was giving a sense of what it felt like to be in Kabul. And from there, it started to grow. I think I saw the potential for a book that took this approach. I see. We tend to think of Afghanistan as a desolate place, you know, geographically, and maybe some think desolate uh, culturally or historically. Yet, you know, the opposite is true. And um, Kabul is at a crossroads of sorts and has this like deep, complicated history, some of which you touch on uh, in the book. But what captured me here was not how deep and rich Kabul was, but how deep and rich Kabul is. And you you write of libraries and cinemas and, and weddings and salons and, you know, talk about all of these kind of rich layers of life in, in Kabul. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe talk about this and also tell us why you call it, uh, call your book Shadow City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great, interesting observation because, um, as you say, there's, there is a sense of barrenness, I think, in the imagination when uh, which I include myself in and when I went to Kabul for the first time. I hadn't conceived of it as a city of, um, I would say, nuance. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and at that time, my frame, my main frame of reference was before the Taliban and after the Taliban, and it was extremely black and white. And one of the most important things I learned over the time I spent in Kabul was that how extremely different reality is from this perception that we have of the city. And that makes sense because it is a city. And I think this was what I found really interesting the more time I spent in Kabul was the sense of distance, the conceptual distance that we tend to take from this place. It seems like um, very often I'd be asked, so what is it like there? And you know, the, in that in that framing and that tone of the question would be an inherent sense of distance, mm-hmm. as if it's a city which you cannot conceive of or you cannot imagine inhabiting. Whereas actually, of course, everyday life does go on in the city, along with tracks of war, along with a history of 40 years of violence. There is, you know, moments of banality there, are, of course, everyday life and its entire range of emotions. I think for me, this became an important part of the process of writing the book. And uh, everything that I saw, as you say, there were so many things to excavate, to sort of engage with. Slowly, uh, you know, many things revealed themselves slowly. Many things were just sort of there, but I hadn't seen other people be very interested in them. But because I'm, as an Indian woman, I related to the city quite differently and the things sort of resonated with me in a different way. So I went ahead and I explored those parts as well. Um, a lot of this book is about the physical aspects of the city, but I also spent a lot of time just listening to people talk about their memories of Kabul, which I thought was really fascinating. Um, there's also mythology, there's the history of Kabul 
in literature, and there's also the idea of Kabul in literature of the region. So there was this sense of richness. The longer I spent in the city, it kept emerging layer after layer. When I was eventually writing the book and thinking of a title for it, my editor actually came up with the name Shadow City, and I grew to like it a lot because it has that sense of um, being ephemeral, of being Mm -hmm. sort of there and not there. Um, and a shadow is very much something that appears, you know, if you're walking down the street, it sort of travels with you, but it's not really uh, <laughs> something that you can touch or, you know, you can't really grab a hold of it. But at the same time, it's indisputably there. And I think that was the sense I got from Kabul was that there are so many layers to the city and you do have to look for them, for them to be to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why I, I found the capacity. The capaciousness of this name quite appealing. Mm-hmm. What you say here about um, conceptual distance is, you know, something that I certainly felt uh, when I was reading your book. Uh, you know, especially in your you know discussions of the cinema and the salons. And I remember thinking as I I read your book, um, feeling a bit ashamed that I would be surprised uh, <laughs> to discover that there is everyday life in 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 Afghanistan. I think. From the American perspective, we're bombarded by, you know, media accounts of this, you know, war zone wasteland with radical insurgents and, and nothing more. And so it's it's a bit embarrassing to, 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 to read this and to be surprised by something that I shouldn't shouldn't be, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's a really interesting response, actually. I felt the same, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know how. And uh the interesting layer to that for my response was also that India is a lot closer to Afghanistan physically, of course, but also, um, which is what I discovered over time, was there is also a sense of shared culture, which is so much stronger for the Afghans. They would feel it a lot more. They would talk about it a lot more than I would or people around me in India would. So I think it's not, um, I mean, it would definitely differ, but I think it's uh, it's quite widespread, the sense of, um, you know, astonishment mm-hmm. that a city like Kabul could be a city, like a place that you might even imagine knowing or might seem <laughs> familiar to you. Right. You mentioned in, in the book that your family is Pashtun. Um, and so you have a, a, a somewhat of a connection to um, the region. Um, and what was very nice about your book is that your your grandfather um, appears throughout your book as kind of like a, a guide, uh, like kind of like a Virgil from afar, you know, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> when others question your decision to go to Kabul, he didn't, he seemed to support it. And he seemed to kind of, I don't know, guide you in, in terms of the, the literary uh, history and the literary diversity of of um, of his past and, and your family's past. So, wondering if you could, you know, talk to us a little bit about um, him, your grandfather, and his support and his kind of literary impact. Yeah, that's such a lovely way of describing him, Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> and it's, uh, every time I think about him and the book, it's just extremely emotional because, like you said, he was such a big form. Uh, he, he took such a big uh, role in how the book turned out. Um, my father's side of the family has Pashtun heritage. And this okay. was, you know, it's sort of, um, it was a small part of how I related to Kabul eventually, because, uh, you know, it was all sort of in the past and it gave me a way to arrive in Kabul, um, which was a way of excitement and curiosity, which I think in hindsight, I feel was a was a good way to enter the city rather than being anxious or apprehensive. Mm. And uh, 
But as you say, my maternal grandfather, Baba, was the person who really, truly guided me when I was there. And a lot of it was because he inhabited this cultural matrix so effortlessly. And he was able to almost intuitively understand what it was like to be in Kabul, though he had never visited. And he actually told me this, that there are certain cities I know really well, even though I've never visited them. Mm. And so this strange thing would happen that I would be in Kabul and I would come back to Aligarh, which is where he lived. And I would describe things that I saw there to him. And then he would tell me stories about the things that I had seen. And then, you know, I would sort of be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And the next time I went, I would take that information with me and that would grow into something else in Kabul. I would speak to other people or I would see things or read things. And so he was like a bridge between me and the city where he never left his room from his study, you know, purely this sense of intellectual engagement. He was able to connect me to Kabul in a really, really rich way, I think. Um, because all the, you know, there were so many things that I learned from him that changed the way I related to Kabul. For instance, he told me about a really beautiful love story that's set in Kabul in this Persian epic called the Shah Nami. Mm. And uh, the princess of Kabul is Rudaba and she falls in love with a visiting warrior uh, prince and uh, they both have this, uh, and, and they're both in love with each other without seeing each other. And then eventually they get married. Um, so Baba to- telling me the story changed the way I saw Kabul as a, it became a setting for romance, as a place where you could experience longing and desire and love. And I think that things like this really shifted how I could, uh, what I saw in Kabul and how I could then make sense of what I was seeing. That's interesting because um, as 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 you read the book, it, it seems that there is kind of like a romance, but with the with the city um and that's that's interesting the longing like you know the the idea of 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 falling in love with a place and and finding you know uncovering the true magic of of a place as as one experiences it you've mentioned also um that the, the literature acted sort of as as a bridge um and it helped you kind of arrive and so we have the, also here the language of of movement and i think you mentioned somewhere in the book that uh kabul uh the, the name refers to uh, a bridge yes one of the legends about how the city got its name is um is that it's it used to be a city on a magic island in the middle of a lake and to get there, the king who built the city, he built a bridge uh, leading to this island. And uh, it was built out of straw, which is ka, and the, the word for bridge is pull. So the combination of straw and bridge, which is ka and pull, became the name of the city, which is Kabul. Yeah. And so the, there's this kind of language of, of, of movement. And of course, movement plays very heavily in, in your book, as, as the subtitle alludes to it. So a woman walks Kabul, but so does uh, a gender here. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to um, what it was like to walk in what I would probably erroneously think of as a war zone. What is it like to, to walk in, in Kabul? And what is it like to, to walk as a, as a woman in Kabul? Just a quick note, and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.
Yeah, it's that's a really interesting question because, like I said in the book, the idea of walking was a loaded one for me when I arrived. And mm-hmm. um, I was almost one of the first things I was told when I got to Kabul was that I shouldn't walk. And this wasn't because I was a woman. This was because I had come from uh, abroad to work in Kabul. Of course, there were people all around. There was life on the streets. But because I had come from India, I was a um, you know, someone from the outside, mm-hmm. I was told that it wasn't safe for me to walk. And But because I already had this complicated relationship with with being told not to walk as an Indian woman, I it that you know that landed for me differently, and it also made me feel like um, this was a city I that kind of felt familiar because uh, you know I'd already been told not to walk in <laughs> in many places, so I thought well maybe this is some place where I can negotiate my path also. So that was you know a sort of a interesting beginning to to this journey. And I think the the feeling of walking in Kabul was also a useful one for me to use in the book because it changed um, pretty much in keeping with how the city changed over the time I was there. So 2006, it was relatively easy. Um, and I'm saying relatively, of course, because this was still not never a completely safe city, but it was relatively simpler for me to be able to go out to uh, walk to the bazaar or to walk with my friends um, around on Friday afternoons. And as time went by, as the security situation started becoming uh, more fraught, it's interesting to note that the response physically and also from the Afghan government and also the international agencies working there was to withdraw from the streets. And I could see that reflected in the geography of Kabul, um, which was suddenly, you know, half the street would vanish behind these massive uh, concrete barriers. Uh, There would be uh, these suddenly these boom barriers would turn up, there would be sandbags in front of homes. So I could see the city transforming in this in this very geographical way as well. Um, I would say that the feeling of being on the streets was, um, you had to sort of be prepared. Um, what I learned was that things could change very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, I had to learn to trust the people I was around and to take their advice for whatever they felt was the right thing to do at that time. You'd mentioned somewhere in the in the book, which um, was really rev- a lovely way to, to put it. Uh, you'd mentioned that walking is a luxury, um, and I, I understand now what you mean in terms of your experience of walking in India um, as a woman, but also now your experience as, as walking as a foreigner in, in Kabul. But it, mm-hmm. it's an interesting inversion, right? Um, because of the class associations with the the idea of walking as a luxury, um, you know, in the United States, um, and I assume some other parts of the world that, you know, people <laughs> wouldn't want to be caught walking, like walking is a, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a different, um, it's a different thing. It's something that people, uh, uh, dislike. But I was wondering maybe if you could attempt to answer this, like, does walking help shape the perception of a city in a different way than, um, I guess, other forms of, of transportation in the city? Yeah, that, I mean, I think that's a really good question in the sense, for me, I think it's a really important question because, like I said, I already had this very complicated relationship with the idea of walking. And um, as an as a woman who grew up in an Indian city in the north of India, uh, it was uh, never okay for me to just be out. And this is a feeling that a lot of women I've spoken with in India resonate with in the sense that just 
stepping out of the house, you needed to have a reason to do that. You couldn't inhabit the streets in this very carefree way. You couldn't loiter, which is actually a really interesting book mm. about set in Mumbai, which is called Why Loiter? And it's very gendered. Uh, men can be out on the streets for leisure, for no reason at all. For women, the idea of being out for no reason at all was a very loaded one. So even if you were on the streets of very close to your own house, or if I was even in my own hometown, I had to display a reason for being, for inhabiting this space. I had to carry a posture of work or purpose in my gait, in, in the way I move my body or, you know, just I had to sort of signal to people around me that I, it was okay that I was there. I had a reason for being there. And I think this is what makes me so, um, this, this is what makes me so receptive to the idea of walking as a way of exploring spaces. Um, even if it's, uh, if it's not a city where, where this kind of equation works, I find it a really, really precious uh, movement, you know, the mm -hmm. the ability to go wherever I want, wherever my two feet carry me, um, the feeling of being able to to loiter, to wander, to sort of just meander through, you know, it doesn't matter where I end up. I think this is a feeling that I find extremely central to in the real world exploring cities and as a writer, then making sense of what I see. Um, I find very often that I, when I'm writing, I feel if I'm putting two images together, they're adding up slightly differently. And if I can take, you know, a slightly sideways look at these two two images, it tells you a larger story. I feel if you sort of let go of the idea of linearity, if you can let go of the idea of, um, I don't know if I'm making sense, but I mean, yeah. what I'm trying to say is that I think that there is a sense of richness to the idea of being able to go off the beaten path and to be able to explore in which walking gives you. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what I tap into a lot when I'm writing. Yeah, no, definitely when you read the book, you, you don't get the sense that you're just walking from point A to point B in, in the city, but it's more yeah. of like a kind of organic or a concentric circle type exploration um, where you venture into the public and, and into the private spaces, right? From graveyards into, you know, very intimate uh, situations with, with uh, women in salons and, and uh, marriage, uh, marriage parties. So these concentric circles of uh, spaces here in which you walk, I think is, is what gives this book a lot of depth and um, kind of resonance that someone else um, who perhaps isn't a woman or isn't a foreigner might not um, have access to, which I think is a very interesting element here. Yeah, I think it took a little bit of time also to, just as a writer, to uh, as a woman, to also see the value in this kind of meandering and in these kind of paths, because um, Kabul is such a densely engraved terrain. Uh, it seemed almost, um, it seemed to make... Uh, you know, like almost like common sense to go through a certain kind of checklist of issues to write about. And, um, you know, and there was also so much being written about the city and there was so much going on about, about Kabul at that time that I, at one point I had to think about, is this a book about current affairs? And mm -hmm. once I could say, no, it's not, is when I could focus on going to all the, into, into all the spaces that I really enjoyed and I found interesting and seeing the value in that, you know, because I feel that's also a journey uh, for a woman writer to take. 
um, especially as an Indian woman writer, I had to trust the fact that there was value in these stories and, and in my being able to inhabit these stories and, and to telling these stories to readers. I think that was also a journey that even while I was writing the book, I was undertaking. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? I mean, when uh, when did it come to, together in your mind that you knew you had, you know, a series of stories uh, to tell that other people weren't telling? Um, I I think around um, two thousand. I mean, it's hard for me actually, Jeremy, to put a date to it. Mm-hmm. But I do remember feeling quite strongly the longer time I spent in Kabul. Like I said, that. It wasn't satisfying to be able to write just news or even write news features. And um, I think around 2011, when I was spending, uh, you know, weeks and weeks all together in the city and I could see sort of things shifting around me, I was very keen to capture a sense of that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I think the once I had the idea of writing a book, the biggest challenge I had was finding a structure that could accommodate this sense of exploration. And that could also allow the reader then to also fill in the silences with their own imagination. You know, like you said, that can we imagine this as a city which might be familiar? I mean, would there be a moment when a reader could see an image of Kabul or think, have a scene described to him or her about something that's happening and feel, oh, that sounds familiar? You know, so I think this was the longest um, and the hardest part of the writing for me, which probably began after 2013, which was when I stopped going to Kabul and started, you know, inhabiting the manuscript really, really deeply. And I took a lot of time. I wrote several drafts of the book until I could get to the structure, which I felt was a good balance uh, between me telling a story and the reader then being able to take that story and make what they wanted of it. I also had to find a balance between myself in the book mm-hmm. um, because I was quite clear that I didn't want it to be a memoir in the sense that I didn't want it to be the story of a journalist going to a place and talking about what happens to him or her because I felt there have been a lot of stories like that, but not so many about the city itself. And I was quite clear that I wanted this to be a book where Kabul was the central character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention, um, or I was going to ask you about the, the memoir question, uh, because it's easy to, to characterize a, a travel book as sort of like a memoir. <laughs> but, you know, the, mm-hmm. I think like the memoir would, the central kind of, uh, I, I guess, um, struggle in a memoir would be some sort of psychodrama, you know, of, uh-huh. of the individual. Yeah. But this one, um, if it is a memoir, it's one that, um, and I'm not sure it is, I'm not calling it it, but um, if it is a memoir, it's one uh, that focuses on uh, Kabul as as the uh, as a protagonist, which is, is interesting. Um, you're, you're in it, um, but it's not about you as a memoir would be. Yes, exactly. I think that was key for me was that I, of course, I, I had no um, sort of compulsive need to cut myself out of the story. I'm quite okay with sharing with the readers that this is my viewpoint. This is what I feel. And also I thought my being there, I could open up the story in the sense that I could make the connections between myself and Aligarh, between India, between my own memories and what I was seeing in Kabul. The central question, I think, which I used when deciding 
where I should be in, on the page and where I shouldn't is whether my voice was opening up a different vista of Kabul for the reader. Mm-hmm. And that's that was the functionality of my being on the page. Like you said, mostly I would agree with you that it's not a traditional memoir. I mean, I hope that's how it's turned out to be. Of course, every reader reads the book differently and you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's now a, it has a life of its own and I can't really decide how it goes down. But <laughs> I feel in a traditional memoir, uh, you would there would be some kind of internal journey of the narrator that we tend to track. And in this case, that character, the protagonist is the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, in light of what you're saying about traditional uh, narratives or not traditional narratives, but, you know, post-2001 narratives, of uh, Afghanistan and, and the city, um, I was wondering if there, if you encountered any roadblocks um, in proposing or publishing a story that has or tells a different type of of story of of Afghanistan, one that's not kind of like war reportage or <laughs> or uh, related to war or anything like that. I mean, directly related to the struggle and and and, and tensions of war, you know. Yeah, that's a really perceptive question. Um, and I think it's, uh, I learned a lot about how publishing works through the process of writing this book. I think there was initially, there was an expectation that this writing about Afghanistan, as I said, would go through a series of issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that this wasn't a book that sought to do that uh, was definitely a challenge, at least in the initial stages. And I think the fact that I was drawing on different um, devices to build the book was also a little bit of a challenge for initially for people to support. I think for that reason, I took a long time to build it myself before I even pitched it. Um, And I waited until I was quite confident that I could carry the structure through the book. And from that point on, I feel I was very fortunate in finding an agent who believed in the vision I had for the book and then eventually an editor and a publishing house that was behind this. But I think in the initial stages, I felt quite clearly the expectation that this would be either a memoir about a woman being in Kabul or it would be a story, a bunch of you know portraits of um, the so-called hot button issues of Kabul. And that would have been very, very boring for me to write, I think, because um, it's just uh, I was already tired of doing that for news. Mm -hmm. And there's also this um, I think for that reason, I could just take the risk because it didn't you know, if if there's one less book about Afghanistan, so what? You know, there were already (laughs) so many and so many good books as well. You know, there have been some really, really excellent reportage. There's been some fantastic documentary films made. So I could sort of give myself a pass in the sense, well, you know, even if your book doesn't get published, that's fine, as long as you write it the way you want to write it. Mm-hmm. And I think the risk uh, paid off because you have here a, a unique uh, and a very beautiful um, and, and rich and, and deep book. I was wondering if you could uh, close us off by perhaps reading a, a short passage from your book. Sure. Um Thank you so much for your deep reading, Jeremy. I'm so grateful to you for your insights about this book. Every conversation I have with a reader is really like a gift. And I think during the writing process, I was so focused on the text on the page that I didn't realize how wonderful this part of the process could be as well. You know, just having conversations with people who read the book, who have their own sort of relationship with the city. So I'm really grateful to you for having me on your show and also for your really interesting and insightful questions. 
I'm going to read from the first chapter. It's called Returns. Stories in Kabul begin with the phrase, Yeki Bood, Yeki Nabood. There was one, there was no one. The phrase corresponds to the once upon a time of fairy tales elsewhere. Whichever way you choose to read this expression, it is a good place to begin this story of Kabul, a city that was and never was. Or to use the trick of fables, there it is, there it is not. The story of Kabul begins with bridges, roads appearing on water. In one legend about its origin, it appeared as a magic island in the middle of a large lake. To reach the island, a king built a bridge or a pull made of straw or kah. The combination of the two words that created this bridge, kah and pull, gave the city he made on this magic isle its name. Kabul is an island, or so it appears to the outsider standing on one of its nondescript pothole streets. It deceives you with its high walls streaked with brown mud, punctuated by steel-topped gates. It hides behind the fine mist of dust that hangs over its streets and homes so that the city appears as though from the other side of a soft curtain, like a mirage, a place that is both near and far away. But walk through the small opening in an entrance gate and everything changes. You enter lush gardens and beautiful homes, their rooms filled with books, carpets, photographs, and music. In the older quarters of the city, the flat mud roofs of the tightly packed homes form a different kind of thoroughfare, an elevated path across secluded spaces that is protected from the public gaze. Elsewhere, there appear landscapes of homes clinging to the hills, their windows half reflecting the sky, half revealing glimpses of life in the rooms within. The city appears with a shift in perspective. As a child, I was fascinated by a tiny kaleidoscope my father bought me. It was a plastic tube with a transparent cap at the end, filled with pieces of broken bangles, colored glass of different sizes. I was riveted by this transformation of everyday objects into the fragments of a magical landscape. And I was drawn to how a simple shift of my wrist or even of my eye would make the pieces rearrange themselves into a new picture. Walking in Kabul is like looking through the kaleidoscope. Fragments fall into place, the familiar appears new. There it is, there it is not. Kabul appears where you don't expect to see it. Thank you. It's very beautiful. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Where could we find you online? I mostly now live on Instagram. Okay. Uh, I'm on, my handle is underscore Taran Khan. Um, and I also have uh, my work on portfolio.net slash Taran. Okay, great. We'll put those links in the show notes. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great talking to you. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.